Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And in just a couple of hours, he will make it official yet again. Uh, Joe Biden with a big rally sponsored by labor unions in Pittsburgh, his home state. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday, April 29? Here we go. Another two hours of the Bill Press Show, another edition of the Bill Press Show. Great to have you with us. Hope your weekend was a good one, a very busy weekend here in Washington, D.C. with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And we reach out to you from our studio, as always, from our studio on Capitol Hill, right in the heart of the action. And there will be a lot of action today as the House representatives and the Senate Both come back to town after a two-week Easter Passover recess uh, with a lot on their plate, including jockeying back and forth between the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler and the Attorney General William Barr as to whether or not he will, he, the Attorney General, will show up to testify, as he's been asked to do, this Thursday or whether the House Democrats will have to issue a subpoena to get him there. Uh, And Donald Trump, back from his big rally Saturday night in Green Bay, Wisconsin, who has passed a new milestone, according to the Washington Post. Donald Trump now has told more than 10,000 lies since Inauguration Day. And the number keeps getting bigger and bigger by the day. So much to talk about, so much you want to comment on, and we want to hear from you about, do you know how to do it? Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And uh, back from the uh, wilds of Maine, uh, Peter Ogburn here. But first, 
This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, yes. did you see Avengers this weekend? <laughs> I think I'm the only American who did not. It, it appears as though you are the only person who didn't see it. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, the numbers are in for how much money it made over its first weekend at the box office. Holy cow. $1.2 billion worldwide. That is the first movie in history to cross the $1 billion mark for its debut. It beat the record. The record before this, again, $1.2 yeah, yeah, The yeah. previous record, $640 million. That's wow. how double. Double That's, it. Yeah, they doubled it. And you know yeah. what that movie was that set that record? Avengers, Avengers Infinity won. War, the one last year. The one last year. So they have made so much money. Domestically here in America, made $350 million. That is the biggest opening weekend ever. Put all of this together, how have the Marvel movies done? Because, again, this is sort of the culmination of the 10 years that they've been working on this. Yeah, yeah. You put all those together, they have made $20 billion at the worldwide box office over the last 10 years. Yeah, right. But you think about... The other Avengers movies, you think about Black Panther, you think about all these other movies that have just made a ton of money. Uh, I don't know where they go from here, but uh, good grief. Yeah, and these are comic book movies. They're comic book movies. Yeah. It's amazing. They're comic book movies. Right. Uh, how you feeling? You feeling stressed? No. No? No. No. Well, you were in the minority, I want to point out. Gallup had their annual survey to find out how people are feeling around the world with their stress levels. And there is one country that sits on top who says they feel the most stressed in the world. And that country is? The United States. The United States. Yeah, that's an obvious. Yeah, very, very. Yeah. Yeah. 55% of Americans say that they report feeling, quote, high stress uh, on a daily uh, like on a daily basis. Every day they say that they feel high stress over something. That's Sad. It is sad. Scary. Yeah. But yeah. I get it. I mean, look, especially when you look at Donald Trump in the White House, there's plenty to be stressed about. Uh, there is. But, you know, I just got to rise above it. Don't worry. Be happy, right? That's right. Don't worry. <laughs> be happy. That's my motto. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Oh, another day, another weekend, another house of worship attacked by um, a victim of a hate crime and looked like uh, the perpetrated by another young white supremacist using social media to spew his hate. Sad way to start the week. Hello, everybody. Sad way to end Passover. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Monday, April 29, uh, 2019. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us here. It is the Bill Press Show, of course, as we come to you live, as always, from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Busy weekend in Washington with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I was there. Tell you all about it. Uh, and a lot of news today as the Congress comes back from its two-week little break. They won't call it a vacation, of course. They claim they were working all the time. Uh, But two weeks for Passover and Easter. They're back today with a lot on their plate, including a big standoff between the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, and the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, 
over terms of uh, Barr's expected and scheduled testimony on Thursday in front of the House Judiciary Committee. The Attorney General now saying he won't show up unless they can agree on some different rules for testimony. Um, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I don't know why the Attorney General should be given any special consideration. To be treated just like any other American who goes before the committee, if you ask me. But And I think that's Congressman Jerry Nadler's point of view as well. We'll see how that plays out. Good to have you with us with a great lineup of guests today. Jordan Fabian, one of the best White House reporters uh, covering for The Hill, joins us uh, just about a half an hour from now. Chris Catalago, who covers national politics, the 2020 scene for Politico here in studio with us uh, after that. And then Randy Weingarten, one of our great friends and leader of the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, will be in studio with us as well. So lots going on, lots we want to hear from you about. With all the news of the day, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, on Twitter, at BP Show. Yes, and our thoughts go out to the uh, people of Poway, California. Uh, the latest scene of a hate crime yesterday, a uh, young shooter at the end of the uh, Saturday, at the end of a Passover season, a very, very closing moments of the final ceremony of Passover, walking into the synagogue there in Poway, California, uh, headed by Rabbi Goldstein, open fire, um, uh, killing one woman who is in, standing in front of the rabbi. The rabbi was shot in his hands. He uh, saw some children there who were screaming. He rushed out to grab these children and get them out of the way. Um, miraculously, the gunman's gun jammed. He turned around and ran out, uh, and a few uh, minutes later, uh, he did escape, but a few minutes later, he called 911 and turned himself in to authorities. Uh, but, you know, this comes on the wake, of course, of 11 people killed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh, I forget how many killed in New Zealand, uh, how many uh, uh, Muslims in New Zealand, how many Christians killed in Sri Lanka. Uh, last weekend, just yet again, houses of worship. Uh, seemingly the, the prime targets of this increasing uh, hate crimes committed by, for the most part, white nationalist, white supremacists. Um, a, an appalling wave, uh, an increase in hate crimes, which, of course, Donald Trump says doesn't exist. It's just a couple of people, he says. There's nothing, nothing to worry about. Um, totally, totally. Um, just oblivious to what what's going on, and and especially troubling is in every one of these cases, uh, the murderers have used social media. Uh, it seems that that's where they get their ideas. That they're they're being fueled by what they see on social media, and they're using social media as this killer did in Poway, California, to publish their manifesto, put it up on social media, and then go out and perpetrate their hate crime. Uh, the mayor of Poway, California, Steve Voss, yesterday, uh, saying we all stand with the members of this synagogue. For the Chabad of Poway, I want to say again, we love you, we will stand with you now and forever. And it was not so long ago that Bill Peduto, the mayor of Pittsburgh, faced the same uh, situation with 11 people killed at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. We remember uh, Peduto back yesterday saying, we know what it's like. Six months to the very day I stood outside of Tria Life Synagogue, mourning the loss to our city. 
Today the people of Pittsburgh are with you. Shabbat of Poway and the people of Poway. So no easy answer to stop this hatred, but one thing for sure is we don't need a man in the White House who uh, encourages the white supremacists by saying such things as he did after Charlottesville, that there were some really good people on both sides. No, no, no. Stop giving them signals that this is okay. Uh, but, so back to uh, this weekend uh, uh, in it was the uh, White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner weekend. Uh, and, of course, the big news was that Donald Trump, for the third year in a row, skipped the dinner, uh, refused to come to the dinner, said it was so negative and so boring. Not only that, he put out the order that nobody in his administration, no White House staffer, no cabinet member, no department heads should go to the dinner either. He wanted it to be a total bust. He wanted to destroy the dinner. Uh, let me just give you the bottom line, okay? It was a better dinner without him. Everything was great. Everybody had a good time. Uh, without him, uh, th there was much more of a focus on what the dinner should be all about, which is a celebration of the First Amendment and a rededication of the journalists who cover the White House to do their job which is to tell the truth in season and out of season, no matter what the president of the United States happens to be, happen to think, happens to think about whether he likes it or not. Um, and I want to give a little salute to um, our friends who joined us at the dinner. Um, the uh, all of you, all of us had a table there, the Bill Press Show, uh, and we had some of our friends there. The president of the firefighters union. Uh, Harold Schaitberger, the president of the Iron Workers, Eric Dean, president of the Teamsters, Jim Hoffa, president of the UFCW, uh, Mark Perone, and the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, uh, President J. David Cox, and former Congresswoman Donna Edwards from Maryland, um, all at the table there. And uh, it, was a, it was a good scene, as always. It was a very festive scene. Um, and by the way, we were able to hang out with some of your, uh, I know this is name dropping, but just going to give you a picture of some of the people who were there at the dinner who came by to say hello to our table. Uh, Steny Hoyer, the number two powerful, uh, number two leader in the uh, in the House of Representatives. Congressman uh, David Cicilline, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, Congress, Congressman uh, Jamie Raskin from Maryland all came by, as well as uh, the governor of Illinois. Maybe Pritzker. I'd never not met him before. Uh, and um, Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State. So it's going to be. at the same time, uh, this is a, a dinner where there are not just Democrats. <laughs> so at the same time, I must we had to, uh, we didn't have to, but we did. I guess we sort of had to say hello to a Senator, former Senator Jeff Flake and former Senator Rick Santorum and Larry Hogan. Peter's mayor, the mayor of, I mean, governor, the governor of Maryland. Yikes. I don't know how many votes he got in that room, but anyway. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was there. He was hanging out with Sidney Hoyer when I saw him. Uh, and um, so with the, with the president not there, with no comedian this year, uh, it was the presidential historian, uh, Ron Chernow, uh, who started out right away saying, I know Beforehand, it was always, who's the best comic you could get this year? They decided to go for boring instead of funny. They wanted to try boring at this year's dinner, and I said, 
I said, oh, I can deliver on that big time. Uh, he did a good job, Journal. And I thought what, what thing he did, uh, what he did was he, he talked about the fact that there is, he goes back, he went back to George Washington. And he talked about the fact there's always tension between the president and the press corps. This is nothing new. But his key phrase, I thought he said, it's nothing new, but it does not have to be steeped in venom. Without wow. even mentioning Donald Trump's name, he, he made the point, does not have to be steeped in venom. Ron Chernow. Donald J. Trump is not the first and won't be the last American president to create jitters about the First Amendment. So be humble, be skeptical, and beware of being infected by the very things you're fighting against. So as far as this member of the White House Correspondents Association is concerned, um, I do not speak for the entire organization. I never would pretend to. So, but as far as this one member of the White House Correspondents Association goes, I think it was a better dinner without Donald Trump. Uh, one thing that we didn't have to do was stand up and toast the president of the United States when it happens to be Donald Trump. I have a problem with raising my glass to the president of the United States. So as far as this member of the White House Correspondents Association goes, I'm glad he didn't come this year, and I hope he doesn't come next year. Goodbye, good riddance. We're better off without him. Uh, and by the way, if he came, he'd probably just tell another pack of lies. That's the news about Donald Trump this morning. The Washington Post, they've got this uh, great fact checker, right? Uh, I think that's what they call it, the fact checker. Uh, Glenn Kessler yeah. uh, leads the team there. And they've been tracking Donald Trump's lies. Uh, they're out this morning, the Washington Post. And by the way, they, they document Every single one of them. Uh, and they report this morning that Donald Trump has now passed the 10,000 lie milestone. The actual number as of Saturday night, according to their count, is 10,111 lies. That, uh, again, includes uh, the rally at Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, here's what's interesting about, first of all, I mean, no president, no president comes close, right? But last September, get this now, last September, Donald Trump passed the 5,000 lies. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> so Just this in, past September. Right. So that means <laughs> in the last seven months, he's gone from 5,000 to 10,111. Or to break it down further, further, which the Washington Post does, it took him 601 days to top 5,000 lies. 226 Whoa. days later, he tops 10,000. He's getting more so, efficient with his lies. The pace of lying has really quickened, yeah, right? I mean, I mean yeah. I'm not even, I have to be impressed by that. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's because there are occasions where he just, like, doubles up, okay? Um, he, he last, uh, last week on, uh, so that would be Thursday night, I believe, he was on with Sean Hannity. The 25th of April, he was on with Sean Hannity. In that interview, he told 45 lies, with Sean Hannity. 45 lies. 10 minutes, 45 lies. Whatever. Um, 
Saturday night in Green Bay, Wisconsin, the rally in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 61 lives. Uh, Holy crap. Talking to the NRA on Friday, 24 lives. So <laughs> they break That's it down. That's not so bad. Yeah, 24, 24 is not, it's so, not bad. so bad, right? Yeah, this, you want to know why he didn't testify in front of uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel? This is why, because his, his, what, in two hours? It would be probably 500 lies, right? Yeah, seriously. Right. And the lies, some of them he keeps repeating. Like, he says, I don't know how many times, we're building the wall. We're building the new wall. No, they're not. No, we're not. We are not. Everybody has documented that. It's not happening. He keeps saying it. Uh, he says at the rally the other night um, that the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal means that every single building in Manhattan will have to be replaced. That's <laughs> just that's not true. Such a grand lie. Yeah, that's just not true, right? Uh, he also said, he, "Yeah, we've seen this before. We talked about it. Uh, the Great Lakes uh, Protection Plan, whatever the, the actual name for it is, Great Lakes Conservation, something like that, to protect the Great Lakes." He keeps saying how we love the Great Lakes. When we go out there, we love, love the Great Lakes, and uh, and we're protecting them, and we're doing everything we can. He eliminated the funding yeah. for the Great Lakes thing, and Congress put it back. But he eliminated the funding for the Great Lakes program. So there are lies. These are absolutely documentable, proven lies. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a there's a phrase. It is up to over ten thousand ten thousand one hundred and eleven uh, as of today, um, and uh, and the latest, I guess, is we saw. Um, Joe Biden, who Friday morning put out the was it Friday no Thursday morning put out the official video announcing he's running. Uh, the big kickoff of the campaign is today uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, the firefighters union, under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, actually put out their endorsement. They're the first union to do so. Their endorsement this morning, President Harold Schaitberger, again who was our guest Saturday night at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, has been all the, on all the uh, TV networks this morning. Uh, announcing, announcing that endorsement. And we know that in his um, video, Joe Biden said that this president just has America wrong. He doesn't represent what Americans are all about. For example, and he talked about Charlottesville, again, where a president went down there uh, in the face of these white supremacists, in the face of these anti-Semitic white nationalists. Uh, all he could say was, hey, you know, there's some good people, very fine people on both sides. Joe Biden saying, this is not who we are. Uh, the president could have ignored that. Instead, he had to fight back with a lie. Here he is saying, digging down and defending his comments after Charlottesville. Donald Trump. Well, I've answered that question, and if you look at what I said, you will see that that question was answered perfectly. And I was talking about people that went because they felt very strongly about the monument to Robert E. Lee, a great general, whether you like it or not, he was one of the great generals. I've spoken to many generals here, right at the White House, and many people thought of the generals, they think that he was maybe their favorite general. People were there protesting the taking down of the monument of Robert E. Lee. Everybody knows that. No, everybody doesn't know that. Everybody knows what that was about. It was about anti-Semitic, white nationalists, white supremacists marching through Charlottesville and chanting 
the Jews shall not replace us. I want to read this tweet from Larry Sabato, friend of the show, Our, right? uh, who who works there in Charlottesville, University of Virginia. That's where he's based. And, and uh, by the way, a political total, great, one of the smartest political observers in the country, totally neutral, totally right, right down the middle. Just Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he was there uh, on campus, and he says, uh, <laughs> you know what I heard that weekend? Not one single comment about Robert E. Lee. But I did hear racial slurs, and I heard the chants, Jews will not replace us, and I heard the phrase, into the ovens. Very fine people indeed. Yeah. That's what Larry fine. Sabato heard when he was there. Right. Yeah. But Donald Trump now insists all he was talking about was Robert E. Lee, which, uh, by the way, got a kind of um, uh, an amusing comment by uh, James Clyburn, the uh, Democratic whip in the House of Representatives, who said, why is Donald Trump identifying with Robert E. Lee? And I kind of find it kind of interesting. The president is now glorifying a loser. He always said that he hated losers. Uh, Robert Lee was a loser. That's my favorite clip. That's my favorite clip. <laughs> you know what? It's true. Right? Yeah. I love winners. I love killers, folks. I love to have people who win. I don't like yeah. people who. I, I like people who didn't get captured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? This yeah. is like his standard for whether or not people are good or not. Do they mm -hmm. win? Robert mm -hmm. E. Lee lost. Yeah. Right. Just drop it. Uh, meantime, uh, as as we mentioned, uh, just one that uh, today will be the uh, rollout in uh, uh, in Pittsburgh. Sponsored mainly by the uh, the big rally there for Joe Biden, sponsored by the uh, firefighters union and also by the steelworkers union, you know, uh, under uh, Leo Gerard and the firefighters under Harold Schaitberger. Uh, they've organized this big rally for Joe Biden there. Joe Biden, uh, after on Friday, uh, uh, Thursday, after putting Thursday right after putting out that video in the morning, went up to New York and appeared on the View. Um, where it was interesting, he talked about how he and Joe Biden were really in sync. Uh, and um, Obama. I'm sorry, Joe Biden and Barack Obama yeah. were both in sync. Um, and as he, he points out here, here's the one thing, without rehearsing it ahead of time, that both of them said they were most proud of. Coincidentally, we're each in a different part of the country uh, and we were each talking to groups of people that were being televised. And at the same day, purely coincidentally, we had asked the question, what are you proudest of in your administration? And you know what I said? It turns out he said the same thing and probably a little more what? clearly than I did. <laughs> is that not one single whisper of scandal. Yep. Couldn't say that about this administration for sure. Uh, you know, I, but I, it I, is remarkable for eight years. I do think that Joe Biden is completely rewriting history. There was one major scandal, of course. Oh, remind me. The tan suit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. look, How I, I appreciate Joe Biden trying mm -hmm. to paint a rosy picture of a yeah. serious scandal that the White House, the Obama White House endured, but we will not forget. We will not forget. <laughs> that's sad. I <laughs> right? forgot about that. Yes, right. Yeah, the very, suit. very shameful mark on America's history. You know, I... <laughs> I really wonder what happened to that suit. <laughs> right. I'll tell you one thing. Barack Obama never wore it again. No, he did not. No. <laughs> no, he did not. And I'll bet you it's not hanging in his closet. I bet you that, place, that, that suit <laughs> found its place to a, like a Goodwill. Catholic or, Charities. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. it went away somewhere. <laughs>
He said, get rid of this suit. Burn it, huh? What about, again, on The View? Uh, Megan McCain endorsed Joe Biden on The View, didn't she, Friday? Or she Thursday? did, yeah, yeah, she did. And, and in fact, uh, um, uh, John McCain's uh, widow, uh, Cindy McCain, Cindy. also came out and said that she's supporting Joe Biden. So the McCain family is getting behind Joe Biden. Hmm. Well, so um, uh, Biden, of course, was asked a couple things you know he's going to ask about. Uh, one, his age. Hopefully, uh, I can demonstrate not only with ages come wisdom and experience that can make things a lot better. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's his response there. And, of course, he was also going to be asked about uh, Anita Hill. There are a lot of mistakes made across the board. And for those, I apologize that we may have been able to do and conduct it better. But uh, I believed Dr. Hill from the beginning. Uh, and uh, he'll be asked more about that, of course, through the campaign. Uh, still, I think, hasn't come up with the best explanation for that. That is a uh, a mark that's going to haunt Joe Biden throughout the campaign. Uh, two other things before we uh, take a break here and welcome Jordan Fabian to the studio. One is um, lost another giant uh, over the weekend in the person of the death of Senator Richard Luger from Indiana, a real giant. I mean, um, made a... He he is the kind of Republican we don't have anymore, a Republican who led on many important issues, including and and principally uh, on the issue of nuclear proliferation. He and Senator Sam Nunn, former Senator Sam Nunn from Georgia, of course, the Nunn-Luger plan to try to uh, to to round up uh, nuclear material, particularly from the former Soviet republicans and make republics, and make sure that they were safe, and also to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. He was a real leader uh, in reducing the spread of nuclear weapons weapons around the world. Uh, Luger dying over the weekend. Uh, and uh, he, uh, at one point, um, ran for president of the United States back in 1996. Today, I'm announcing that I have decided to run. The official announcement of my campaign for the presidency will be in Indianapolis on April 29. Richard Luger, uh, sad to see him go, but uh, to, to see, see his loss, uh, made a great, great contribution to our history and to the United States Senate. Uh, and one other thing, Peter, you're up in Maine, right? I was, yeah. Just uh, well, I, I want to congratulate you for delivering while you were up there. Okay. Because uh, on Friday, the governor of Maine signed an important bill. She signed a bill uh, saying we will no longer celebrate Columbus Day. Oh, interesting. Yes, it is now going to be in Maine, Indigenous Peoples Day. Right on. Yeah. I love that. There is, I, I'm going to take credit for that. She said, I, that's why I'm giving you credit yeah, for that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. She, she said, there is power in a name and in whom we choose to honor. So get this, at least now six states... And 130 cities and towns have renamed the holiday, Columbus Day, which is the second Monday in October. Uh, but So we're up to six states now who won't honor uh, Christopher Columbus. That's I think that's cool. The governor, of, uh, look, the governor of New Mexico signed a similar bill just last month. Vermont's legislature also passed a law, which is now awaiting the governor's signature. And then North Carolina... Alaska, South Dakota, Oregon, and Minnesota uh, 
are uh, have, have adopted some different name, um, something like Indigenous Peoples Day, and not celebrating Columbus Day, That's which great. I think is a real step forward. Hell yeah! I uh, love in, it. in the meantime, uh, Donald Trump last October put out a statement saying, "Quote: On Columbus Day, we commemorate the achievements of this skilled Italian explorer <laughs> there we go. and recognize his courage, willpower, and ambition." Values we cherish as Americans. Oh, my God. Yes. Slaughtering the natives, values we cherish as Americans. How wrong can you be? All right. Quick break here. Jordan Fabian covers the White House for The Hill. Joins us now in studio. Give us a quick break. We'll be right back on this Monday, April 29th. This is The Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, April 29th, here we are. It is the Bill Press Show, as always, coming to you live from our nation's capital. We're brought to you today, among others, by the uh, International Association of Firefighters, those great men and women of our firefighting departments across the country, led by uh, President Harold Schaatberger, on the front lines protecting American families every day, and on the front lines in Pittsburgh this morning, ready for uh, sponsoring the big rally for Joe Biden's official uh, opening launch of his campaign uh, with President Harold Schaatberger there leading the fight. I think he's introducing the vice president today. Uh, at any rate, we salute the firefighters and thank them for their support of the uh, program. And welcome to the program. Just all tuckered out after just a whole weekend of wild partying, Jordan Fabian covers the White House for the Hill. Hello, Jordan. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Bill. We ran into each other several times over the weekend. Yeah. You were Indeed. sober for the most part. For the most I was part. Bill. No, I, you're going to have to spill the, the, the goods here, Jordan. How, did Bill behave himself? Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> the rest of this is redacted. You noticed that yes. that's right. Yeah, we're, we we made a pledge before that we came live on I the air that we were that. not going to tell all the stories. Right. Okay. Uh, Jordan, you know, we've been at it for a little bit here. Peter, bring us up to date. Yes, indeed. Lots and lots of comments. We talked about the mostly scandal-free Obama administration with the exception of, of course— With the exception of the tan suit. The tan suit. That was the big scandal. Somebody chimed in and says the fact that Barack Obama capitulated to not wearing the tan suit is an example of his constant capitulation, Bill. No. You should not be <laughs> proud of oh. that. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah. That's Obama one way to can't win it. for losing. Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump crossing the very important milestone of all of his lies— 10,000 lies. Uh, KG says Trump's lies don't even seem to matter. He's getting his message out to his base, and that's all that matters to him. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. And also, uh, we talked about the uh, gigantic, huge opening weekend for Avengers Endgame. Yeah, uh, somebody pointed out and said it is clear that the world wants fantasy heroes these <laughs> days when you look at all the news around the world. Uh, I think that's right as well. Uh, if you have any comments, find us on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. I was just thinking, think how much bigger the take would have been on Avengers if this had not been the weekend of the White House Correspondence Center. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. All those people who couldn't go because they had parties. And so dinner. many people. <laughs> <laughs> parties and dinners to go to. Yes. Uh, so I know you uh, did not go out to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, for the. Uh, for the big rally, but uh, this was a another classic Donald Trump move, right? Uh, and sort of poking at the media by scheduling a rally at the same time as a dinner. Yeah, and, and for a group of people who claims they're they're totally not obsessed with 
you know, hanging out with uh, media elites and and Washington swamp creatures. They they did seem to uh, have that subject on their mind uh, throughout this rally because you you had not only the president needling the media, but you know Sarah Sanders, who was famously up on the dais when uh, Michelle Wolf roasted her last year. Uh, kind of made a, a side comment. She was actually up on stage during the rally, which isn't yeah. isn't a typical thing at these at these rallies. And she said, uh, "Well, this is certainly a nicer welcome than than I received uh, last year, or something like that." Right. Um, even even Brad Parscale, the, the campaign manager, uh, made a point of saying that he had been invited to dinner and didn't want to go. So, uh, look, Trump has criticized the media. Throughout his presidency, and he's going to be running against the media in 2020 as as one of his opponents, in addition to whichever Democrat wins the nomination. So this is all part of the theme. Um, so it, it, uh, I thought it was unusual for Sarah Huckabee Sanders to play such a prominent role at a partisan rally. Right. This is a campaign rally, right? It had nothing to do with really operation of the White House, if you will an unusual role for a press secretary. Uh, here she is. She actually introduced the president at the rally. They said he couldn't rebuild the military, and he's done it. They said there was collusion, and there wasn't. Meanwhile, the crowd breaking out in a little chant here. Which Donald Trump making a joke. She's becoming too popular. I'm jealous. Sarah, you're fired! <laughs> but I'll tell you who I did run into a couple of times over the weekend was Sean Spicer. You oh, know, he was everywhere, yeah. He was everywhere. He's looking better and better in retrospect, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would no, go that far. But no, but, <laughs> yeah. no, he was everywhere, sort of yeah. trying to trying to bounce back. Has, has, uh, has Sarah been hurt by... The Mueller report and the revelation that she actually lied to us in the briefing room about countless members of the FBI calling the White House to say how happy they were that Trump fired Comey. That's certainly a a hugely damaging revelation for any White House press secretary to say that you you knowingly passed along false information to the press. Uh, That being said, this is a press office that doesn't operate like its predecessors in the sense that there are no briefings anymore. I mean, the last time there was a briefing in the briefing room was March 11th. It's, so Is that it's right? Been, March 11th. Correct. Yeah, I was there, I remember. But ooh. Right. So it's been quite a while. So uh, you don't have um, you don't have a press secretary that's regularly briefing the press. So it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost like a side issue that she is given this false information because she's no longer – Performing the the primary of duties of that job, uh, you know, she's she will go on on Fox News and get the message out that way. You know, we sort of get a chance to pigeonhole her on the North Lawn driveway when she does those television hits. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, uh, you know, she, right. we can respond over email or in person if you have a question. But as far as that daily exercise of going through the briefing, uh, that's not happening. So there, and and from the press's perspective, there hasn't been a chance to really confront her about that. I know that George Stephanopoulos on ABC News confronted her in an interview the day after the Mueller report, but uh, there hasn't been that chance for the White House press corps, the people who she gave that false information to, to then follow up in a public forum and try to correct the record. Well, I think we've talked about this before, but when I've raised the issue of briefings, 
uh, the response I get, and I'm sure you get the same, is we don't need the briefing because the president stops almost every time he walks out to Marine One to talk to reporters. And so, uh, you know, what do you want? Right. And and that's and that's great that he does that. I mean, really, it, it's it's nice to have the chance to question the president regularly. And I will say that the Trump, I think, takes many more questions from the president than President Obama ever did. That being said, there, there are questions that you ask the president that you don't really they you, well. Let me reverse that. There are questions that you would ask in the briefing that you wouldn't necessarily ask of the president. Where where you can yes pursue something right. Yeah, hopefully you, yeah. exactly. You can ask multiple follow ups. You you can ask about issues that are important but maybe aren't necessarily on, on the president's radar yet. Uh, those sort of things that that aren't happening now. And and you know back to your original question, Bill. And the big issue here is that the, the press secretary's credibility is really all they have. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you, you're severely weakened and, and you can't really perform the duties of that job. So now you have the situation where you have a press secretary whose credibility is undermined, yet she's still in this role. And uh, it's I think it's really diminished. And, and this is what not just my opinion, but from what some Trump allies tell me is that it's diminished their ability to get their message out to a broader audience because they their ability to use that podium has been restricted by some of the missteps that press office has taken. Right, uh, building going back to the rally in uh, in in uh, uh, Saturday night. Look, we know we know part of it was to try to take away from the White House correspondents' dinner and also further tweak the media, maybe part of the war on the media. But it it it, it seems to me also that the White shifted into campaign gear and that that's what we're going to see for the next two years. Do you, do you, do you feel the same way? I mean, that, that's all it seems that Donald Trump talks, he's talking about 2020, 2020 all the yeah. time, right? I mean, I, I think that the the campaign, well, the campaign for him for re-election started the, the, the day after he took office right. and, and it really ramped up after the midterms when yeah. you know he had that press conference. He basically said... Uh, I mean, he basically launched launched his campaign speech against Nancy Pelosi, right? Well, I, re- I remember, and, and this didn't get a ton of attention, or not nearly as enough attention as I thought it deserved. He went on a couple of these rallies, went to a couple of these rallies not long after he became president, and everyone was going, what's that all about? Yeah. Right? And they said, this is actually, these are paid for by the Trump 2020 campaign. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he like, started raising money, like right I think in January... Yes. Uh, seventeen or earlier than than really any other president we've seen in the modern right. era. But particularly so, now that the midterms are yeah. over, it seems to me that it's all twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's I, what he loves to do. He loves these rallies. Correct, and he he loves to do it. I think he feels in his element there. And not only that, you know, you have you have this Democratic Congress, the Democratic House, that um, doesn't. I mean, they're passing bills. But they're they're going to run into uh, you know black hole in the Senate and stuff that's not going to reach the president's desk. So, in the absence of legislating, um, you know he's he's going to campaign and and he has some. It's a target rich environment for him because he has the news media, he has the investigations that House Democrats are carrying out right now. He's and now the that wall. the wall, yeah, big. right, the the wall, the shutdown. I mean, all of this stuff, all these issues that he's focusing on are very much geared toward juicing that base for 2020. Right. Now, uh, the one thing that is, maybe the one exception to what we just talked about is, and you referred to it, the House holding these hearings. And the president last week said, 
we will do, I may be paraphrasing, but, but pretty close. We will do everything we can to dis, to interfere with these or, or to p- block these hearings from going forward, meaning we're not going to release any financial documents, we're not going to release any tax returns, and we're not going to allow our people to testify. We'll do everything we can to prevent Don McGahn or Bill Barr from testifying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the posture. And, and, and there's a will that succeed. Uh, I think he, I think the president can succeed in delaying the 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 request of House Democrats for sure. Whether he will ultimately succeed is a different question. You know, some of that we did a piece on this last week, and especially with the Don McGahn testimony, there 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 are many people who believe that he waived executive privilege the minute that the White House allowed Don McGahn to speak to Robert Mueller, and that report then became public. They believe that information that's in the report, it, it is legally at least dubious, at, at least for the White House to declare pr- privilege over it. Now, for other issues like security clearances, for um, other requests that Democrats might be going after the tax returns, for example, uh, the the White House and Trump's private attorneys are certainly gumming up the works. And a lot of people believe they can delay these requests for, for months. And so... If they can push a lot of this back until after the 2020 election, they could potentially prevent a lot of damaging information from becoming public as a result of these investigations. But you, I think you, you made a key point here, um, one of many key points this morning already, but which is delay, delay. I mean, it, 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 it could be that this is sort of his MO, mm-hmm. right? File a lawsuit, tie it up in the courts, and delay it. Through 2020. Yeah, and, and that's – look back to his business career. That, exactly. That is a, that is a strategy yeah. and a tactic that he used going back 30 years to you know get after critics in the news media, defamation suits, you know, creditors, casino yeah, right. vendors, you, know, yeah. you name it. Yeah. So this is totally familiar ground for him, and it will be interesting to see how the Democrats in the House respond to this, whether they uh, you know, it, it declare that a, a witness is – in contempt of Congress, and if so, what does that mean? Are you fining them, or how how are you punishing people, or how are you incentivizing them to to show up to your hearing? That's going to be an interesting question for and, them. And uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the answer to this. But I was wondering. I mean, does executive privilege can executive privilege reach people who no longer work for the administration? I could see where you could assert it for the Attorney General, or you could assert it for the Chief of Staff. Can you assert it for a former White House counsel? My understanding is, and I'm also not a lawyer, but my understanding is if you are talking about discussions that were advising the president on on, on certain matters, even if the person is now mm-hmm. no longer in the White House, I think that you couldn't yeah. necessarily declare blank, blanket privilege and say this person can't talk at all. But for those certain topics... Those are covered by privilege. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I could see a lawyer making that argument at yes. any rate, and, and it does hold some. I mean, that that was those those conversations were held in an executive forum, Correct. right, in the Oval Office uh, with the President of the United States. So you could you could assert that. But what we're really talking about here is a a classic conflict over separation of powers right, between the presidential, I mean, the executive and the uh, legislative branch. Absolutely, right. which yeah. got which will have to go all the way to Supreme Court ultimately. I would think. 
I, I would think it's a safe bet to say that many of these disputes could reach the Supreme Court, especially you know, if they decide to declare some kind of privilege with Don McGahn. That, that's certainly something that could reach the highest levels. Right. Um, you mentioned, uh, we've, we've been talking about Don McGahn. Um, of course, the, um, the, uh, in the Mueller report, McGahn testifies that twice, uh, told, told the special counsel that twice uh, the president called him and in effect said, we need you to fire Robert Mueller. He's got a conflict. He can't stay there. We've got to get rid of him. Uh, the last time, I think on the way out to uh, Michigan or one of the times, or maybe on the way to the NRA conference or speech or whatever, uh, president talking to reporters on South Lawn said about Don McGahn, no, he never told him to fire him. There would have been nothing wrong with firing him. Legally, I had absolute right to fire him, but I never told Don McGahn to fire Mueller. There's a mountain of evidence that says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting yes. it, right, yeah. <laughs> Including the testimony under oath by Robert Mueller in front of the special counsel. Right, yeah, you had, you had McGahn and, testifying, you, and then you had also Rob Porter, the former staff secretary, recounting in, in contemporaneous notes about how McGahn went to him and said, hey, the president had this crazy request of me, and I'm, I'm not going to do it, but uh, he wanted me to b- deny in the New York Times, uh, mm-hmm. to the New York Times, that he had he had fired, uh, asked him to fire Robert Mueller, and that, that certainly didn't happen, so... Uh, it's laid out in painstaking detail in that report, and the uh, the New York Times had reported on that, on that of, and then, of all this w- that was right. going on. Yes, and then McGahn, and then the president, according to the Mueller report, the president asked McGahn to to deny to the New York Times that he had ever said that, and McGahn said, "I'm yeah. not going to do that." Yes, right? yeah, correct. <laughs> uh, uh, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. The clearly. As, I thought it was interesting over the weekend that um, Lindsey Graham, who had just finished playing golf with the president, said, I don't care what happened between Donald Trump and Don McCann. This seems to be kind of one of the new tactics, which is Mueller report is out. It's done. It's over. Stop talking about it. Move on. Well, I think that's how congressional Republicans would prefer it, because they would prefer the president talk about the economy and some of the positive aspects of his administration that they believe are going to resonate with voters in 2020. Now, the president still seems to be quite consumed with the Mueller report and how he is portrayed in it. Uh, you know, the, the, the original line was complete and total exoneration, and that has changed yeah. because of some of the things we've been talking about on the air this morning. And so for the last couple of weeks, you've heard the president repeatedly chiming in on this, and uh, he seems to not really want to move on himself. And, you know, I, I was told by some sources last week that he's very unhappy with Don McGahn and, and, and is really kind of consumed with with what he said to the special counsel. So whether and how long it takes for the president to move on, I mean, certainly we'll move to some other topic at some point. But right now it's, it's very much on his mind. Uh, there's an article in the uh, New York Times Saturday. Uh, the headline is, the FBI warns of Russian meddling in the 2020 race. This FBI concerned that the Russians are up to the same thing in 2020 they were in 2016. And last week we learned, I'm not sure it was from the Hill or whatever, I'll give you credit if it was, um, that Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of HHS, was concerned about this as well. 
and she wanted to um, suggest to the president they should do something about it. And Mick Mulvaney says, no, whatever you do, don't talk about Russian meddling in 2020. He doesn't like to hear about that. Why? Or is that the, the, you... the reason why I, I think the reason why it's a sensitive subject for the president is because he believes that any talk about Russian meddling or Russian interference in 2016 erodes at the legitimacy of his election win. He views it through personal terms, not not in the broad sense of you. Know, we had Impact we had a foreign on, adversary yeah. is, is meddling in, in in a U.S. election. In other words, it's all about him. <laughs> more, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is how he views the world. I mean, this what's is, new, right? Right. right. Huh. So, <laughs> yeah, so, and, and that's the reason why. I mean, that that that's that, that's that's pretty much it. Which uh, was the principal reason why he didn't make more of their meddling in 2016, correct? Yeah, right, because admitting that, that they did to him is admitting that maybe he didn't win it fair and square. Correct. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. Right, and so just to warn that they may be up to it again in 2020, already he's seeing that as a way of, of undermining maybe what he hopes would be his re-election. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which means the Russians are probably going to get away with as much as they got away with the last time. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes uh, that, yeah, the, the, for what the president says, is obviously concerning to a lot of people, but there are other people in the administration, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo, even you know people at DHS, the FBI, uh, who are concerned about this problem and and are trying to address it. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a State Department office called the Global Engagement Center, which is supposed to be pushing back on Russian meddling, and that's had some funding restored after a couple of years under Rex Tillerson when it didn't. So there are things going on, but then the concern is if it, it's not a focus for the president, then how much attention is right. are these efforts really getting, and will there be enough support for it to actually make a difference in 2020? And that's a big question for a lot of people. Have you been able to look into the alleged payment of $2 million to get Otto Warmbier back from North Korea? So the the, the administration says it was never paid, but uh, we haven't seen proof one way or another uh, whether the the ransom was actually paid. Right. Uh, yeah. John Bolton said over the week, admitted over the weekend that that they North Korea asked for that money yes. and whoever was negotiating with them promised to pay it right but that so far we haven't so Correct. i guess technically we didn't pay it even we broke a promise to pay it which um um may be true too right but that's all we know about it right um so is there somebody how much going on is um we know that herman cain uh asked that his name be withdrawn for the federal reserve which leaves um stephen moore still dangling he has not yet been confirmed uh, he's got and men run into a few problems, as the New York Times points out, um, because he's written that this is Stephen Moore. Mm. He's written that women should not serve in the military or even serve beer at men's basketball games. He scraped through a messy divorce, failed to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in alimony and child support to his ex-wife. Is he going to make it? Is Donald Trump still behind him? The president is still behind him, and the White House is still behind him. And I think the question is, does Stephen Moore at at some point do what Herman Cain did and withdraw from consideration? And doesn't, it doesn't and, look and, like it. No, it doesn't look like it. Mm-hmm. I, I saw an interview with him last week, and he basically said, "Look, if I'm a end up being a huge liability for Republicans, 
I'll withdraw. But right now, the president's standing behind me 100%. And unlike Herman Cain, you haven't had those GOP senators come out and say publicly, I will not vote for this person. Uh, you haven't had a single Republican senator, in fact, say that. So at this point, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I will say that Stephen Moore has not been formally nominated yet. So that that step hasn't even happened. So uh, I still think this is still very much in the air, up in the air. But right now, the official line from the president and the White House is that we're standing behind this guy for the Fed. Given board. what we've seen of Donald Trump, you wouldn't be surprised if Trump drops him, would you? I wouldn't be surprised if he drops him, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he stepped by him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look I, at you know, Roy Moore in Alabama Senate. I mean, uh, there, there you go. I mean, that's, that's a prime example right there. Yeah. Roy Moore, Bill O'Reilly, Roger Ailes. You could go down the list. For sure. Hey, Jordan. Great to see you. You got you too, a busy Bill. week this week, huh? Coming up. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for coming in. You can follow Jordan at The Hill. TheHill.com. Chris Catalago from this Politico coming up next. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yeah, just about to launch in Pittsburgh, Joe Biden, the official launch of his uh, political campaign in a big rally sponsored by a couple of unions, the, uh, among others, the United Steelworkers and uh, the International Association of Firefighters. What do you say, everybody? Here we go. April 29, Monday. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for climbing on board. It is the Bill Press Show, and we are reaching out to you coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., bringing you the news of the day online, on the radio, and on television uh, with all that's going on and with Congress coming back in town, with the Biden campaign getting underway. Uh, it's a busy week, uh, and who knows what's going to be happening down at the White House, but uh, a lot of it is uh, their, their time there now being um, occupied by doing everything they can to uh, frustrate or to thwart the Democratic House members' attempts to get investigations underway in the House Judiciary, the House Intelligence, and particularly the House Oversight Committees, as well as the House of Financial Services Committee, uh, and the White House saying we are not going to cooperate in any way at all. Uh, no documents, no tax returns, no witnesses. You're on your own. Chris Catalago and covers um, political happenings here in Washington and around the country, particularly with emphasis on the 2020 race, and joins us in studio. Hello, Christopher. Nice to see you. Good to see you again. Right. California primary looming, right, is more important than ever. That's true. Yeah, we got to uh, look ahead. 
And Never forget. No, I know. I mean, it's going to count this year. It I'm will. so excited it about it. Right. It will. And it, it'll. We'll see who it counts for. That's right. But yeah. but it'll definitely count. And here we go. So we're going to uh, uh, lots and lots of 2020 to explore. We want to hear from you, your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, but first, Peter Ogren's back. Is the full court press? Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, we got a problem in Canada, in Edmonton. Canada, exact problem. Yeah. Well, pot is legal there now, of course. And uh, so in Edmonton, they have a huge commercial scale growing facility there in Canada where they are growing a ton of weed. It happens to be right next to the airport. So when people are flying into Edmonton, they get off the plane and they immediately get hit Inhale, with right? sweet, sweet, skunky smell of freedom. Sounds it's, good. A lot of people... Yeah. They don't like the smell. Oh, I see. Right. Some people like the mm. smell. They don't like. Some people don't. They're complaining. They're saying, "What is that horrible, skunky smell?" Well, it's the giant weed facility. So now they have to figure out what to do. There's really not a way to deodorize a place that's growing a ton of marijuana plants. But, but, but maybe not smoking it. Why are they? What are they? Well, they smell the plants growing. Oh, the plants. The right. plants as they grow, they smell. Yeah. It still smells like weed, right? And so it's not that they're getting high from it. It's yeah. that they're just smelling that that skunky smell. Again, not everybody loves the smell of weed. I think it's great. The smell uh, of freedom. <laughs> the smell of freedom. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, we mentioned in the last hour that uh, Avengers Endgame made a ton of money. $1.2 billion, by the way. Uh, I saw it over the weekend. Uh, oh, you did? I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, there are spoilers that people are trying to avoid, right? There's some big, big things that happen in the movie that they, the filmmakers don't want you telling people about. Well, one guy found out. You can out tell out. me. I'm not going to go see it. <laughs> well, I, there was one guy that found this out the hard way. He walked out of the theater oh. after seeing the movie, and he spoiled the movie to a group of people who were walking in to see it. They beat him up. In fact, they beat him very badly. Whoa. He was admitted to the hospital. He's going to be okay, but he was sent to the hospital. They beat him so badly because he revealed some of the big spoilers, some of the big plot twists inside the movie. Don't do that. Don't do that. But also, don't spoil the movie for people. No, no. That's 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 terrible. Uh, I remember years ago, the Oliver Stone movie came out about John F. Assassination of Kennedy and. People were waiting in line to see the movie, and this this couple said, "I'll never forget where I was when JFK was shot." And these kids, teenagers, in front of them, turned around and said, "Oh, way to go, spoiling Spoiler. the movie!" <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. Joe Biden. Launching his campaign this morning in Pittsburgh. Clearly the front runner as of this moment. Can he stay there? What do you say, everybody? It is the Bill Press Show on a Monday, April 29. Great to see you today. And thanks for being part of the program. Thanks for joining us coast to coast as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. We're here on the radio as well, statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, and Chicago and all the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the big, strong, progressive voice of Chicago, and looking at you on television, on Free Speech TV as well. Uh, Lots going on today, and uh, lots on the 2020 front. 
Chris, Christopher Catalago joins us from, he's the national political reporter for Politico, uh, with uh, full time on the 2020 beat. Chris, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming back in. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, we've looked at everybody's launch to see the kind of first sign of their strength of their campaign, how they launch, how much money they raised. Uh, how'd Joe Biden do? So money-wise, uh, you'd have to say he did pretty well. Uh, but we know that he's in a very different place money-wise than some of his competitors. So just to put a point on it, it was six sure. and a half million, I think, right? Six, or, yeah, clo- almost that. 6.3, yeah. I think. 6.3, right, and which that, was more uh, than anybody else did in the first 24 hours. Yeah, and we know that he oh. spent uh, many, many weeks, if not months, lining up folks who were going to give on that day as a right. show of force. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also know he scheduled uh, uh, many uh, upcoming in-person fundraisers, which is still going to be the primary source of his money. Uh, other candidates have diversified or have gone in the other direction and are raising uh, basically all of their money online, which uh, does not take them off the campaign trail it does not get them into a situation where they might be uh, making gaffes behind closed doors. You remember uh, even President Obama a couple times got caught up yeah, uh, yeah. making comments to uh, to donors that he wouldn't have made publicly. And, and it also lets them— And famously, them, so did Mitt, Rom- Mitt Romney, yes, remember? Yes, of course, the 47%. 47%. And so, um, you know, we will not be seeing that uh, from Elizabeth Warren. We won't be seeing that from Bernie Sanders. Uh, maybe from Beto O'Rourke. We are here. We know now that he has scheduled a, a fundraiser in New York, but so far that has not been part of his calculation. Um, the upcoming ones may be sort of because of Biden uh, getting in the race, um, and then the others are 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 more mixed in their um, uh, intake of money. They're a, a more of a split between online donations and uh, and in person. And so I think on that measure, which is an early measure. Um, he's he's doing fine. But, you know, as we write this morning um, uh, in a story, you know, normally you have someone come in who's viewed as this big hulking front runner and it just shakes up the field and people feel demoralized. That's very much not the feeling right now. He's a uh, I mean, some people will say a front runner in name only. Um, and part of that is just because we don't know what kind of campaign he's going to run. We don't know if he's a, a, a fit for today's Democratic Party. So there are just so many questions with Joe Biden. Um, we even saw with Beto O'Rourke, um, the huge share of the money he was able to raise in that first 18 days was in the first 24 hours. So um, he Biden's going to have to keep up a, a tremendous pace. Is uh, there a possible Hillary effect, meaning uh, that sometimes being the front runner, assumed front runner? too early works against you. I mean, think of Hillary, I'm thinking back to 20, 2007, right, when right away it was assumed Hillary was going to be the nominee and then Barack Obama, boom, comes out of nowhere and knocks her down. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, in, in some ways people will say that. It, uh, with Biden, the interesting thing to me is, and, and people haven't brought this up enough, you know, he waited all these months, whether it was to line up money, whether it was to get his organization together, to a, a precisely avoid what you're talking about, which is getting himself out there and putting a target on his back. But as we saw, he had one on his back anyway. All the allegations that came out and all the people feeling uncomfortable by by him, um, the Anita Hill story um, never really died down. 
um, all of his uh, questions on the uh, crime bill and the uh, mm -hmm. busing for school desegregation, all of these things about his record. We did, no one needed to wait until he formally announced his campaign. And so those will only intensify. And I think the question will be, uh, you know, he's trying to make this this argument coming into the race, uh, very much making it a race between him and Donald Trump, which was uh, sort of the real um, focus of his launch video. You know, he was not uh, focused on the other Democrats in the race. It's a it's a strong electability argument that he's making and making an argument that he could compete in these uh, Rust Belt states. Right. And, you know, it, it, I read your story this morning about yeah. um, some people saying he is a front-runner name yeah. only and that's going to fade pretty fast. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, uh, the contrast of that, a front-page story in the New York Times this morning, Biden uh, head, headline is, Biden's appeal taps the voters his party needs. Um, and and they're, they're talking about Midwest yes. Democrats who fled the Democratic Party went for Donald Trump. He can bring some of those people back. Um, it's instructive that he's launching his campaign in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a must-win state for Democrats. Uh, and looks like it's coming toward the Democratic way, you know, after Trump took it last time. But they also talk about African-Americans, that Joe Biden uh, has deep roots there, um, which were really solidified by spending eight years as Barack Obama's uh, vice president. Um, here is one they're just quoting from, this is from the uh, Germantown neighbor, Uncle, Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Bookshop in Philadelphia. Classic. Classic place. And they went in and this one guy, Ciara Walker, says, quote, just to be in the house and assisting Barack when he was in the house, he would already have my vote for that alone. Yeah. So that's important. I mean, particularly with South Carolina coming up. You hear that uh, a lot. Yeah. Last weekend I was in South Carolina and, and um, uh, the name that comes up the most um, right now is no question Joe Biden among uh, black voters, among well, older voters. Well, that's interesting that it's not Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. No, not yet. And, and you know, they're Could banking be, on, but not and, not. and to use your Clinton analogy, part of what we wrote was uh, this was very much the scenario in 2007 heading into 2008 uh, in South Carolina in particular, which is a very important early state for Joe Biden. Um, we had uh, Hillary Clinton who had a huge amount of institutional support pretty much all the big endorsements in South Carolina and, and Barack Obama, who had a large number of volunteers, a huge field program to, to, to turn people out. And of course, we know how that went. He ended up winning the state in a, in a huge upset. And mm -hmm. so uh, that's very much what the others are banking on. Um, you hear a few things about Biden. It's the electability argument you hear. Uh, there is a lot of uh, goodwill and, and a, a lot of sh uh, warm feelings that people still have about him not only serving as uh, Barack Obama's vice president, but also being sort of part of that whole administration. So it's, you know, you hear this from black voters, you hear this from black elected officials. Um, it, he has, uh, uh, but again, it's been um, 10 years since he, he ran his own campaign. And we know it's it, campaigning for yourself is is very, very different from campaigning. Yeah, and he's uh, run twice before. And uh, you have to say that yeah. neither time did he show any proficiency as a presidential candidate, right? Both yeah. were pretty embarrassing uh, the other, attempts. Yeah, and the other reason the field is uh, is on not his own. 
on his own. Yeah. And the other reason the uh, the field is not freaking out at the moment is when you talk to people, especially these other campaigns, are sort of these mile posts that come up. And, you know, everyone had to clear the first fundraising deadline, which we all wrote a lot about and needed to show some strength and that they're going to be able to hang around with uh, Bernie Sanders and and uh, Beto at the time and, and some of the others. Harris was sort of up at the top um, in terms of money. Mm -hmm. And now what you hear is uh, these first two debates. These, you know, we're not going to have, uh, we'd have to ask the DNC who we will have, but uh, there is very little chance we will have this huge field of candidates going into the uh, third debate of this race. So these first two, um, yeah. especially for these folks in the middle of the pack, yep. toward the yep. bottom of the pack who are fighting to get in yep. these debates, they feel like they can have a big moment there. And, and yeah. you know, Joe Biden is going to uh, be one of 21 people standing on stage. Uh, uh, 21? Well, by the... It, it, we talk about Bennett and uh, oh, getting in maybe the, uh, Bullock, the Bullock uh, governor. Maybe getting in. Okay, yes, right. Um, I want to. Uh, I want to ask you about. The, come back to that maybe question. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but first, one final thing on Joe Biden. He was yeah. on the View uh, Friday, uh, Thursday afternoon, I guess, and um, the issue of age came up. Right. You know, uh, of course, Bernie's a year older, I believe, isn't he? Yeah, seventy-seven, seventy-six. Joe's seventy-six. Mm -hmm. Um, and here was Biden's response to the age. Hopefully, uh, I can demonstrate not only with ages come wisdom and experience that can make things a lot better. So I get asked this question a lot. And I'd, I'd love to get your take on it. Is the age factor an issue anymore? If you look at it, you'd have to say the two, again, at this point, this early, the two front runners are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. The oldest two white men. That's true. So and did, they would be running against an older uh, or younger than them, but an older, oh, uh, in a comparatively yes. white man as well. Right. Um, you it, know, it's so interesting. Did Bernie destroy the age issue, or kind of? I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I think Bernie around. has proven that he, you know, has the energy that people uh, uh, would expect from a presidential candidate. And and on the other side, you know, to give him credit, so is Trump. I mean, yeah, he uh, we so saw what he Biden. did during. And, and so is Biden. But there are some more questions with Biden, I think, than the others. Um, you know, about the, age, uh, just about whether he 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 has the stamina, stamina and the um, energy yeah. and how he's going to campaign. Bernie does a lot of rallies. Bernie yeah. Sanders. Um, uh, he does not do as much at the moment uh, media. He, he he has kind of his own media empire that he he's building up. He is indefatigable up. when yes. it comes to uh, his campaign. I mean, the schedule that he keeps and has yeah. kept up over the last two years, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, and so I think with Biden, uh, the big questions are, you know, what, you know, we, we know he has this big speech today. We know he's got some fundraisers lined up. We know he's going to go to Iowa. He's got several events lined up in Iowa. But, you know, what does that look like? Does he stand up there and give these speeches to crowds? Is he is he is mm -hmm. he doing town halls? Is he interacting with voters? How packed is his schedule um, and and where is he going to be and, and how does he hold up? And it, it's not just a question of age. We've seen, you know, younger candidates sort of fail in this gauntlet of a, a yeah. process. And so I think um, it, certainly it's a question. Um, but the other funny thing is, you know, you talk to voters and. A lot of younger voters uh, don't see age as, as as big of a deal as older voters do. You know, you get into your uh, mid to late 70s and you talk to some of these older voters and some of them have a bigger problem with it than younger voters do. Mm -hmm. 
So back to the debates. Yeah. I was thinking about this. So the, the question is, all right, the two debates, end of June, back-to-back, M- M- NBC, MSNBC, Univision, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I believe. Um, and they're going to be prime time. So there are, at this point, 20 candidates. And the question, again, I always get, how are you going to get the, how are they going to get them all on stage? Well, they're not all going to be one night. It'll be half one night and half yeah. the next. But when you look at the 20 candidates so far, we got to admit, not all of them are going to make the grade, right? That's true. There's not going to be 20. There, um, so I want to so let's let's make a list of the ones that we think might not make it, right? I mean, you got to say Marianne Williamson is not going to be on, right? Wouldn't you have to? The question with her is the um, she would not buy the polling measure, but the question with her is whether she could get enough uh, sixty-five contributions right? from yeah. and and from the states Either as well. Or yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, a a a tough. The other thing is we have had some of these folks announce. That they've met those thresholds, right. but that the DNC has not yeah. certified them. So yeah. you know you have like Andrew, Andrew Yang, Yang. He's who's an been example. in. He's, he, he he was in here a month ago, and he said he'd already yes. he'd already made that threshold. Yeah. Right now, the mayor down in Florida, whatever is in boy mayor. Yeah, he's having trouble paying his staff, and so yeah, um, uh, would assume that he he would not. I would have to question whether Eric Swalwell. Or Seth Moulton are going to make it. Yeah, certainly the fact that they've come in to this uh, race later, much later than a lot of other candidates, Moulton just last week. Right. And so I think that's a good question. I mean, you you have to poll above the threshold. You have to meet the sixty five thousand. Um, you know, right. there are candidates right now who we see running uh, Facebook ads for uh, the most popular Facebook ad right now is asking for a one dollar yes. donation. Right. And uh you know Jay, Jay, Inslee, Jay Inslee he is strikes doing me that. as someone yeah. who is really kind of on the uh on the uh fence here in terms of uh whether he'll make it. And his argument is not you should have Jay Inslee on the stage. His argument is we should put climate change on the on the stage. Right. And so he's making a policy subject argument and saying if I'm up there you're going to hear a hell of a lot more about climate change than if I'm not. And so okay. if you want to hear about that, even if you don't support me, and, you know, then he'll give a plug for his website, which uh, we're not going to do. Right. So um, my wife is a Hickenlooper, I mean, a, I'm sorry, a Jay Inslee supporter. Okay. So I hear every day about okay, Jay yeah. Inslee, and I see the emails. I mean, yeah. he's making a concerted effort mm-hmm. uh, exactly how many we need by the end of this month in order to qualify for the debate. That's, that's, that's his whole focus. Now, at the same time, John Hickenlooper, I don't, I don't think Hickenlooper. Yeah, he's he's the question for some of these folks is, is they just you know he's had one a lot of the things that drive these big fundraising days or these big moments that they have or if they're able you know we're seeing with Elizabeth Warren now she has put out email after email after email obviously she's mm-hmm. she's met it no matter what with the polling right, and, and all right. of that and she has more than enough yeah. contributions so we're not talking about her potentially not making the stage but. Uh, what we see with these candidates is when someone with a big name gets in the race, uh, they use that as a as a real um, sort of starting point to hit their uh, their network. What do you think emails. about Tim Ryan? Does he make it? Uh, that's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and John Delaney, forget it. Uh, shouldn't even mention his name after he stiffed us. 
Thursday. He was supposed to be. Oh, on the he was show supposed to be in here. He's no probably show. in Iowa with his uh, twenty-five I don't know where staff. He wasn't so we just we just we just identified one two three four five six one two three four five six seven who a good chance they're not going to make it just to give people an idea so about means, how difficult yeah. yeah just to I mean how difficult this threshold is I mean there are there are much better known candidates on it you know comparatively better known candidates folks like Cory Booker who we saw running these one dollar ads and continued to run them who, you know, he will be in because he's met the polling threshold. But, you know, he's better known than a lot of these other folks and has been on the national scene for a lot longer. So that that is not an easy uh, right. threshold to meet. Let's approach it another way. Of the yeah. candidates who are out there now, who do you say are the heavy hitters, right? Uh, certainly Bernie and Joe. We've talked about those yes. two. Um, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Um, Mayor Pete? Mayor Pete and I would still, even though his crowds are really thin, I would still put Beto, Beto in there because there. Yeah. he's got, you know, yeah. I, he's not doing, as you've noticed, uh, the, the town halls, the cable news. He's basically taken himself entirely off of mm-hmm. uh, cable news in a lot of ways. And he's out there. And the reason he's doing all these events in all these states, he's doing several in California, is because he wants to be able to say that he's 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 following a strategy that he had in Texas, which uh, worked for him, which right. is these high number of events hitting these places, even if they're not the biggest crowds. And, you know, the kinds of questions he's going to get on cable news right now are not the uh, uh, most conducive to his campaign. That, that's not really where he's going at the moment. And again, these debates are coming up. It's funny. You talk about who may or may not be on the stage. Uh, a lot of folks who you mentioned in this higher tier are probably just uh, just as well with that happening because the 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 worst situation would be for you to be uh, on there with a bunch of uh, uh, folks who uh, you know you don't see as in because this is going to be a random draw. Yeah. And so this you hear a lot from the campaigns right now is you know I want to be on the stage with some of the top contenders um, mm-hmm. because that's a debate that people are going to want to watch. And so have being stuck, um, you know, there's also a question of do you want to be on the first night or the second night? Right. And uh, there's burnout right. that people have with these things. I mean, the, the, you you got to be a political junkie to be tuning in to the end of the second debate. I mean, especially uh, this far out. So there's all kinds of sort of thoughts that go into it. So, well, so we identified five or six, really, yeah. let's say, of the heavy hitters. And then there's a second tier. Again, they could... They could they could certainly move up, but at right now they're sort of running second tier. Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? Right? Yeah. And, and, and Klobuchar's sort of in the middle. I mean, we saw she did make the cut of the five hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Beto did not participate, you can make the argument his spot went to uh, his seven. I think it was seven p.m. It was the first. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one went to uh, Amy Klobuchar. So she's she's sort of teetering. The thing about a lot of those candidates is, um, you know, Klobuchar, maybe more than others, is in a really sort of a must-win situation in Iowa. She, that, that is her neighboring state. And so we will know earlier in the race, potentially, with someone like her, someone like uh, Gillibrand, whether um, they'll be able to go the distance. The other thing we're hearing is you have folks like Julian Castro and others oh, who have had him. a lot yeah. of trouble – uh, raising money at this point and have had trouble breaking out. And so for them, you know, someone like that needs the debates 
potentially more than anyone. And, right. And he's kind of hanging around that, you know, nine ten spot on your uh, on your list there, um, or, or on our list. And so, right. you know, he is um, someone who really needs it. And um, there are a lot of people you talk to who don't think that not only will a bunch of these folks not make the first two debates, they may not make it through this year into Iowa. Oh, yeah. I, I think some of them may not make the first debate, and that's the end of it for yeah. them, right? Uh, there's going to be, I think, dropout before the first debate and dropout, certainly more dropout before the second. So uh, another question I get asked all the time is, when is it going to get nasty? Well, Or is it? It, going it, to get will, the, will these Democratic candidates turn against each other, or will they continue just to focus on as they have so far? Here's what I stand for. Here's what I stand for. Here's what I stand for. And of course, we all want to get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, they'll all be saying that. By you know, the interesting thing about Biden's entry is it does create a real point of contrast. And and we know Elizabeth Warren has a long history with Joe Biden, going back to this New York Times op-ed she wrote about. Uh, um, Wall Street and and the Wall Street's influence and singling out someone like then uh, Senator Joe Biden and his influence that he had um, there on the committees. And so I think we're starting to see some differences. Um, uh, Those are some of the first. We saw Bernie Sanders pointing out um, these top donors that are showing up to uh, get behind Joe Biden, these big bundlers who have uh, strong ties to corporate America. And so I, I don't and, know that I'd call that nasty, but Pete, it, it is a contrast. Pete Buttigieg uh, took a couple of hits at uh, um, Bernie. Yeah, comparing his supporters to uh, to Trump supporters. You know, I mean, there is, uh, as as you would know, I mean, voters, they're not, you know, a lot of voters out there are not looking at this in the most purely ideological way. And so I think um, there's more crossover among all of these candidates. And one of the surprising things for people is the crossover between potential Biden and Sanders supporters. These are not uh, people mm-hmm. who would never vote for the other. These are yeah. these are people who go back and forth in some ways and maybe supported Bernie before and might be with the Biden this time or maybe vice versa. So, um, you know, there's there's more crossover here. But you'd have to argue at the moment that Biden's entry probably immediately has the most impact on O'Rourke and Buttigieg just because uh, they are the more running a little bit more of a moderate Democratic campaign. And if there's anyone who has sort of captured the moment and is enjoying a moment um, to the expense probably more than anyone else of Beto O'Rourke, it's Mayor Pete. Yeah. I mean, I hear all the time people saying, can't believe how good he is. Yeah. You know. I would say Pete and and probably someone like Kamala Harris and maybe even Warren. I mean, the the the, the thing is that this is someone who uh, we will see how much it can how much it will continue because some of these things have a novelty factor. Uh, he will also be uh, spending more time doing traditional fundraisers. We know he's got a ton of them set for California, New York, other states, and 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 people don't realize how much time that takes these candidates, how many days off the road they have to go to do these things. And that's that's why someone like Sanders has sort of figured out, um, and Warren is trying to, she's not doing them, but she hasn't been able to raise the money at the speed or the clip of, uh, of Bernie Sanders. But yeah, I, I think no question that, that uh, there's this sort of novelty factor there, and mm-hmm. um, people seem to uh, like the contrast between 
him and Donald Trump. And so I think that... Uh, What's uh, Barack Obama going to do? Automatically endorse Joe Biden? I would think that he would stay out. Out of the primary. Out of the primary. He put out a statement. He's that talked came to out most day. of them, just kind of giving some advice. You know, they've gone to him seeking his advice, and he's yeah. met with most of them, I think. But yeah, I yeah, think but. he, um, you know, he he, according to the reporting that's come out of those meetings, has talked about how difficult a process it is. He's talked to folks about the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what it's like on their family, what it's like for them. Um, but yeah, he put out a statement about, uh, you know, support as his. Uh, vice president, a lot of that is sort of, um, to me, seems like uh, what would have happened had he not said anything, right? Then yeah. you have a slew of right. stories on day one yeah. uh, last so. week for Joe Biden with a, with a silent Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, but there have been comments coming from Hillary Clinton, coming from others, that, that, that it, there's a strong electability argument that uh, the Democratic establishment is making around Joe Biden. And it's just getting started, Chris Catalago. Thanks so much, Chris, for coming in. All right. Um, no better coverage than you can find on Politico, politico.com. Uh, and when we come back, one of the real leaders of uh, American Working Families and American Labor Unions, the president of the American Federation for Teachers, our good friend Randy Weingarten, joins us here in the studio. Coming up next for Education Week and uh, more support for America's teachers. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, hey, on a Monday, April 29, uh, what do you say? It is the uh, Bill Press Show. We are coming to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And joining you uh, wherever you are in this great land of ours. We're there right alongside of you online, on the radio, and on television. With all the news of the day, we have reached a... Uh, um, not something to celebrate, but we've reached a milestone in the presidency of uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, and as reported by the Washington Post this morning, uh, the president has hit a new milestone. As of Saturday night, the president is now, according to the Washington Post, they keep count of these things, uh, the president has now to totaled up 10,000 111 documented lies since Inauguration Day 2017. And what's particularly striking about that is uh, that it took Donald Trump 601 days to top the 5,000 lie mark and only 226 days to go from 5,000 to over 10,000. So the pace of the lies told by the president is increasing. Uh, I think he finds he can get away with it, so he's telling even more, including Saturday night, according to the Washington Post count, in the rally out in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 61 lies told in that one rally alone. Uh, <clears throat> a new, um, let's say, a new milestone and far, far, far surpassing the record of any other president. But enough of that. Uh, let's talk about uh, the news in the education front, uh, and nobody better to do that uh, with us than our good friend, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, uh, proud sponsor of the Bill Press Show, for which we are very grateful, uh, Randy Weingarten. Hi, Randy. It's good to see you. How are you, Bill? I'm good. good. How have you been? Everything um, good? You've, you know. been, you've been out there busy on a lot of fronts, yep. I see. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as you were talking 
you know, for the first time since there's been these um, National Teachers of the Year, um, President Trump is not going to show up to honor them. And But I think that if you kind of connect this together, what teachers do is we try to make sure that kids c- can discern fact from fiction, and the Teachers of the Year you know, have the courage of their convictions and would say something to him. And for, but for the president not to show up for the teachers of the year, to be oh too busy to do that, um, is just another example of the disrespect for knowledge in this country. And, and the spate of lies is another example of the disrespect of knowledge and the disrespect of people in the country. So this is the third year of his presidency. Has he um, honored, been there to honor the teachers any of the, fir- yeah, the first two was, years? Yeah, you know, he was, they never invite us. Like we, yeah, you know, okay, despite, right. despite my <laughs> asking him a couple of times on budget issues for meetings, mm-hmm. they, you know, they ignore us. But yes, he has. And, mm-hmm. but, and the last year, one of the teachers of the year who actually just did a teach-in at the El Paso border you know, raise these issues with him. And, um, but I, I do think, you know, what you see more and more with him is that he just, he, it's, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, just blow, you know, blustering and blustering and blustering and not ever wanting anybody to actually challenge him in a way that the cameras are on. Right. Um, so I was um, uh, interested to see you at a news conference at the press club the other yes. day. Um, about a new um, um, call, uh, what should I say? A new project, I guess, that you've launched, right? right. With right. AFT, Freedom to Teach. Right. Tell us about so it. So this is so you know last year, and you know through the Los Angeles strike, the last West West Virginia strike, a lot of people have wondered what what are these strikes about? The teacher strikes. They're about two things. Number one is disinvestment. 25 states spend less on public education than they have, uh, than they did before the Great Recession. 41 actually spend less on higher education than before the Great Recession. But the second piece is also the hollowing out of our profession. And that is created by the top-down, test-based, data-driven, mind-numbing way that teachers actually have to fixate on data as opposed to children. So mm-hmm. if you combine the lack of resources and this kind of sense that 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 they cannot use their own judgment, their own professionalism. So what we have focused on this year is how do we fund our future and create the freedom to teach. And and in some ways Pete Buttigieg said the same thing in his um announcement to run for president. People need the freedom to be creative. We, we mm-hmm. can't have teachers basically leave their ingenuity, imagination, and creativity at the schoolhouse door. No, I mean, that's and why you That's why what, you teach. That's, what you, that's and, exactly and what so, you want them for, right? And, and so what you see now is that it's a, we have a huge teacher shortage. All 50 states have a teacher shortage. Hmm. Over three, there were 300,000 fewer, there were 300,000 teachers who leave a year two-thirds before retirement. There were 110 fewer, 110,000 fewer teachers than we needed last year. As I said, all 50 states have a teacher Hmm. shortage. Hmm. And 
of the teachers that are there right now, over 100,000 are not credentialed in the areas that, they, that they're teaching. And there's been almost a 40% plummeting in the number of, of, of young adults that are going into teacher colleges. That creates a crisis of knowledge and a crisis in terms of the future. And so we focused on the two root causes and spent some time talking about what could change this. And let me give, just give you two examples. So your focus is on the states, I would imagine, yeah, right? Yeah, but it's the states, but it's also, you know, a president who doesn't show up for the teachers of the year. It's culture that's, change. That's a message. Uh, Betsy DeVos, who basically is, you know, either negative or ignorant about most of our issues, that sends a message about the importance or the lack thereof of, of the pursuit of education. But the, the, the issue, this is solvable. Yes, it requires culture change, but we've had a bunch of schools throughout the country that actually do better. And, and what we have to focus on is, how do you create a culture of collaboration how do you actually address the teaching and learning conditions that teachers need to teach and kids need to learn? And how do you give people the voice and agency that befits the profession? And so, for example, after 3 o'clock in the afternoon in mm -hmm. extracurricular activities like debate, like coaching, um, sports teams, like theater, teachers have a lot of latitude to teach. They have the freedom to teach. And yeah. those courses, a new study found, those times after school, Saturday, Sundays, kids in high school like that better than <laughs> going to school. So yeah. why can't we give teachers the freedom that they have after three o'clock? Before. Before three yeah. o'clock. And, and so, so the questions we said, look, why can't teachers basically say, be able to ask this question, or you ask this question of a teacher, what do you need in your classroom for you to be able to teach and students to be able to learn. And then use those results as part of the district assessments. So you fund what teachers are telling you in the classroom they need. Or, or how about something like this? If somebody tells you that a dictate, you get to ask the following two questions. What is the purpose of this? And how does it contribute to teaching and learning? So we just put a bunch of these very common sense things out, which we know if teachers had the freedom to teach, if they had the latitude to focus on what kids need instead of a district testing mm -hmm. regimen or paperwork, 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 I think we'd get more people not only to come to the profession, but to stay in the profession. And it's better for the teachers and for the kids. Of course right? it is. Yeah. If, if, if you are at night, most of us, I taught high school social studies, most of us are up every night figuring out our class for the next day or for the week or grading papers or both. If, if what has happened in the last decade is that teachers have become test preparation managers and have become paperwork peop, uh, clerical people. And so between data reporting, data entry, so what they're doing at night these days is entering data rather than thinking about what their kids need the next day. What, when, when there's a pacing calendar, you know, what are you supposed to teach that day? Districts give you a curriculum. 
What are you supposed to teach? When there's a pacing calendar that says you can spend 20 minutes on this or 10 minutes on this, and, and you spend more time than that, and you get in trouble for that, that's wackadoo. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so, right. so, so, right. so what all we're saying, it's pretty simple. Let teachers teach. teach. Let them, you know, we're not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be curriculum and there shouldn't be standards. We're saying we have standards. We have, we have basically where we need to go. Let us figure out how to get there and give us the resources we need. So let's make sure there's not a rodent infestation <laughs> that yeah. one has to clean up every morning. Let's try to make sure we deal with asthma by eradicating mold. Let's make sure that there's actually heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer. Let's make sure we have internet capacity. I mean, this is what teachers are asking for. So when you go back to the root cause of those strikes, it's these two things, disinvestment and this deep professionalization that is hollowing out the soul of teaching. One thing that you said, which I find most troubling, is that there are fewer people entering teaching yes. teaching colleges. These, right. Yeah. And it's not just— Which is because a lot of it salary or a lot of it because of these so restrictions, it's too. both salary, which is part of the disinvestment. I mean, that's part of the yep. reason Kamala Harris came up with that, frankly, fantastic proposal. But— you know, teachers, actually 38 states, if you think about inflation, are, are paying teachers less than they paid teachers 10 years ago. And if you look at the skills that teachers need, um, people with those similar skills in other professions make about 24% more. And, and so teaching, has, has, teaching needs to be paid more, but you, you think about the healthcare costs, the student debt, the lack of a living wage in lots of places, and then you combine it with the fact that somebody's trying to teacher-proof what is the most important job, which is the connection between you as an adult in a classroom, you the teacher, and yeah. kids, and being able to, at a moment's notice, respond to like listen to kids and and build on what they're doing and hear them and build on them. We, you know, in teacher parlance, we often say, we want to meet kids where they are, not yeah. where some outsider who's never been in a classroom thinks that they should be. But right. you gotta to get them there. You gotta meet them where they are. So you need to give teachers the freedom to teach the latitude where they're not going to get in trouble if they spend twenty three minutes on a particular lesson as opposed to a pacing calendar telling them to spend 20. Right. Remind us of the Kamala Harris proposal. What Kamala Harris did was she, um, using the EPI data, the Economic Policy Institute data, that shows that teachers are paid basically 24% less than similar skilled professionals. Mm. What she did was say, this is a national problem like other national problems, and let's figure out a way nationally to get to the medium and get teachers the, the, the pay raises they need and not just ask um, districts or say rural areas or urban areas where you don't have the tax base to actually make a jump of five or $10,000 per teacher. Let's make that a national mm -hmm. issue. And frankly, given that nationally, IDEA, the, 
the the um, law for special needs children was never funded the way it was supposed to. There was a promise that it would be funded 40%. It was only funded 14%. Title I, which is the money that's supposed to go to kids that are um, underprivileged, that's never been funded the way it should be. So what's happened is that districts have had to fund all this stuff. All of these things are really important, but we need um, a federal role to actually lift this to its rightful place so that people can ha- make a living wage. They don't have to sell their blood plasma. They don't have to do a second and third and fourth job. They can make a living wage doing the work that helps create every other profession and every yeah. other worker in America. Uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, teacher movements in uh, in Los Angeles, in uh, West Virginia, I think Oklahoma too. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma, and, Carolina, you know, Kentucky. Kentucky, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Colorado, West Virginia, now Los the, Angeles. Now, Oakland. I sure you know that the <laughs> governor of Kentucky, Matt Bevin, has come out and yeah. blamed the, you, blamed the teachers for a harm that has come to children because of these strikes. That if you had not gone and strike these children, particularly one little seven-year-old girl who was shot in a shooting accident by her brother, would not have happened. It's all so, the teachers. It's all the teachers' fault. This is, you know, the thing about Matt Bevin that's really um, sad is that rather than go to root cause of any of the issues, you know, it is this culture of blaming people who are actually working every single day to try to eradicate these things. It, you know, I'd I'd like him just to, you know, I just I feel terribly sorry for him because of his lack of compassion, knowledge, or efficacy. And, you know, maybe we can mentor him about how to actually be a good governor. But it's it's just this, you know, it's it's taking the Donald Trump blame the victim or blame the people who are actually taking it into their own hands to try to make things better. It was just, it was, it was stupid what he said. It was insulting. And frankly, that's part of the reason why most people are just ignoring it. Um, one other issue I wanted to ask you about uh, I, uh, th- that struck my attention over the weekend, knowing you were coming in. I saw this uh, article in the New York Times. Polish teachers end a strike, but say the fight is not over. Uh, teachers in Poland went on strike for three weeks. Right. Um, they also got a lot of criticism compared to they were compared to Nazis and people were calling all kinds of names. But what struck me is this new energy that we see among teachers, or maybe the energy was always there. The manifestation of it in these stuff is it's not just the United States, right? Is, right. Well, do you see a connection here between well, teachers around the world? There is a connection between teachers around the world, but let me just you know say what's going on in Poland. Poland, um, Turkey, uh, Hungary, Mm. we have seen the um, onset of tyranny again and the erosion of democracy. These autocrats. And what has happened is that the teachers in Poland, just like what you saw years and years ago with Solidarność, Mm -hmm are actually 
freedom fighters and are trying to ensure that democratic norms do not get eroded. And the criticism that they got was from a government that wants to and has eroded voice at work and voice in democracy. What has happened in America, but so, so what you're seeing in both America and in these other countries is that teachers um, who are on the ground every day trying to make a better life for the kids we serve have taken the mantle of more and more responsibility mm. for opportunity mm. and for justice. That's the connection, that, that people feel an onus that they have to do this. And, and, and look, I think it's amazing. It's, it's in the truest sense of what Gandhi and King talked about in terms of civil disobedience, that if you've tried everything else and it didn't work, Right. You got to jar the system some so that you can then negotiate what is both morally just and right and common sense. And and that's the tie and 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 this that's the that's the activism here and that's why I think the public is supporting us because they see the connection between what teachers are doing and what kids need. Right. And what's 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 really I think impressive here uh, is that it's the teachers who are standing up and the teachers right. who, who are leading, right. you know, in community, state after state right. and country exactly. after country. And then, right? so that's so, why you see Matt Bevan was embarrassed because he was really stupid last year. So now, instead of actually saying, okay, I was wrong, mm-hmm. he's doing something. I mean, what he should actually do, why don't you do something about gun laws and make sure that, you know, that, that we have sensible gun laws in Kentucky? Right. Um, Today in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, the United Steelworkers and the International Association of Firefighters, among others, are sponsoring a big rally for Joe Biden's official launch of his uh, 2020 campaign. Um, Has the AFT endorsed yet, and are you going to? (laughs) (laughs) No doubt we will endorse. (laughs) No, we have not endorsed yet, but what we're doing is we have a four-step um, process, but I'll give you an example. After the speech I gave last on in in last week, I guess, mm-hmm. on the freedom to teach, virtually every um, presidential candidate tweeted their um, endorsement of what we did um, because they see and feel on the ground what teachers need to teach and teachers need to be able to meet the needs of kids. So. What we're trying to I do. I think they also, if I can just, they also recognize the political force of teachers in this country. I mean, in, in terms of as a right. grassroots movement, but, and but, your members, I mean, they know how to organize. Right. And I th- think that that's true. Very effective leaders, community leaders. Yeah. I think I agree with you that that is true, but I'm getting to the wise. Mm-hmm. The it's not just it's not a political game. The reason teachers are respected is because of their authenticity and their credibility and the fact that they make a difference in the lives of kids. And and the extremist um, right-wing um, uh, machine that has tried to undermine it with the Koch brothers and the DeVos family and the Janus case has not actually been able to undermine that basic connection that teachers want what children need. And that's why 
they are a potent political force. But mm-hmm. for for us, what we've tried, what we re, what we want to do this year, a lot of things are about engagement and connection. What we want to we want to create a trust for the political process, which means that people have to be engaged. So what we've said is, we want obviously to endorse somebody who shares our values and who can beat Donald Trump, but but it starts with engaging the most people we can ever engage in our ranks. So our goal is to have more people involved this year than ever. And then the second, so we have AFT votes, we have a website where we want people, our members, to go to the website and to actually say, this is what I need. This yeah. is what our aspirations are. The second piece is we want the candidates to engage in it with us. So that's part of the reason why we're doing small town halls with with all of the candidates. So no, remember, Bernie went to Lordstown mm-hmm. um, a yeah. couple of weeks ago. That was one of our town halls because right. of the abandonment. And then, you know, at one point or another, we'll get to a place where we'll endorse. And we got a lot of time to go, too. Thank you. Randy, thanks so much, Randy Weingarten, for your leadership on so many issues. Uh, and salute to all of our uh, all teachers of America. Hope to see you again soon. This see you soon. Thank Bill you. Press show. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.